Well, hello, hello, hello! Yeah! Woo! <laughs> Y'all are awesome. It is Friday. We made it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So good to be with y'all. We are in a summer series called The Necessity of Blank. The first week, Daniel did The Necessity of Play or Joy. The second week, last week, he did The Necessity of Prayer. And this week, I'm doing The Necessity of Presence. It's going to be very special. Amen. We are at the part of summer where we have to start kind of pivoting toward the fall. So some of you are students and you're already kind of thinking about classes. I'm sorry. Some of you are teachers or school administrators and you already have your like teacher planning meetings that you guys do. Some of you are scrambling to take a last minute summer vacation because you're like, oh my gosh, it's the end of July and what am I going to do? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. It's fine. Some of you are just, you know, getting into a regular workflow after, you know, going on a 4th of July trip or doing whatever. But we're at the part of summer. Summer's kind of coming to a close in some ways. And I think it's really interesting that life could just kind of keep happening. It's like we have all these seasons of life. It's summer and then it'll be fall and then it'll be winter and then we'll just keep going and going and going. But when I was thinking about the necessity of presence, I was like, I don't want life to pass us by. I don't want just to keep flowing on with life, getting into a regular flow, doing our regular things, and miss out on what's important. For me, when I think of fall though, I'm an artist, I'm a poet. So I'm thinking about concert season, I'm thinking about what tickets do I have to buy, what books do I need to pre-order so that I can put them next to the other books I pre-ordered last fall and never finished. You know, it's just like, it's par for the course. But it's, it's, I can get caught up in my artist flow, we can get caught up in our workflow, we can get caught up in school and whatever we're doing. But I really feel like this is an invitation from the Lord to take a pause, to take a rest, and say, come Holy Spirit. When I look at the Bible, I, I have a business background, I have an MBA, I, you know, it's been hard for me to detox from hustle culture. Going from business to ministry has been a whole situation, to say the least. <laughs> but when I look at the Bible, I keep looking for a God who will honor my productivity. Jordan, good job. You work 60 hours a week, and you get extra credit in heaven when you get here many years from now, right? I keep looking for a God who's like, do more, do more, do more, right? Work is the best thing, and rest is for schlubs, you know? But I find a God who called the Sabbath holy. I find a God where presence is so important to him that he saw fit to hover over the face of the deep at the beginning. When I read the scriptures, I find a God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. I find a God who was fire by day and a pillar of cloud by night for an oppressed people who never would have been free from slavery without him. I find a Jesus who is so present, so embodied, that he left heaven, took on human flesh just to be with us. Jesus is so with us that one of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. And what's special and extraordinary as well is that it's not just God who's present with us. It's not just Jesus who's with us. When Jesus ascended, he saw fit and necessary to send the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. Yeah. 
And as we speak, the Holy Spirit is hovering in this room with those who are watching online, is present in our souls to obliterate and crush loneliness. That is what the Holy Spirit does. So when I'm talking about presence, I'm not just talking about, oh, you know, like turn off your phones, even though some of you need to turn off your phones. I'm not just talking about turn off the TV and have a good time with your kids, even though, sure, you can do that. I'm talking about presence so much so that God himself is infinite presence, infinite friendship, infinite family, so that none of us have to be alone. That's what I think of when I think of the necessity of presence. It's the necessity of being with God and allowing God to be with us. But when I think about presence being so integral to our lives, for me, I'm kind of trying to turn to, okay, so God is with me, so with me that he was with before any of us even existed, and he will be with us after. But I think about how can we lean into this as a church family? How can we lean into this as a congregation? And I wanna start with Jesus's perspective on presence from Luke 10, 38 through 42. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you have your phones, scroll there. If you're not doing none of that, it'll be on the screen. So let's read Luke 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And the church said, but couldn't Jesus have at least lent Martha a hand? I don't know. <laughs> Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are present with us. God, thank you that you are for us. God, thank you that you are here. You came for us. And you are here because we are here. God, you know the needs in this room. You know the questions. You know the struggles. Lord, I thank you that when your presence fills a room or fills a heart, it changes everything. God, I thank you that even though we walked into this room one way, because you are here, we do not have to walk out of this room the same. Lord, open our eyes and open our ears that we may see you and hear you. Let our hearts burn with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we talk about the necessity of presence, we have to start with the presence that changes everything, which is the presence of God. Jesus himself said the one thing, or one thing being necessary, is the presence of God. In Luke 10, Martha is doing something awesome, okay? She finds out that Jesus is coming, and she is doing the right thing, and has the charcuterie board, and has all the Izzy's and all the LaCroix's of every type and kind, and you would think, like, oh, that's, that's what we need to do, right? 
And how many of us are like that? Like I'm a pastor. Any given week, I'm like, yeah, Jesus, I'll be with you, but first I need to make this phone call, then I need to go to the hospital to visit someone, then I need to go to this person for a coffee appointment, then I need to do these things around here, then I need to, then I need to, then I need to, and then I can be with you later, right? It makes sense. Or for those of us who have businesses, where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this and this and this because I got to make sure my employees are taken care of, I got to make sure I'm doing the right thing, I got to, I got to, I got to, or those of us who have families, where it's like, Lord, these are the kids you gave me, and I just need to make sure that they don't pee all over the floor, you know? Like, I am doing the Lord's work, right? Like, that is the reality, you know? And bless your souls, all of you, right? But Jesus turns it on its head, as he does everything, turns everything on its head, where he says, yeah, you think that doing the things is what I need, and I appreciate you, but there's no need to be anxious and worried about many things. You get to do the one thing necessary, which is be with me. There is one thing necessary, one thing. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is about a man named Obed-Edom. And you can find his story in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 13 and 16. And by story, I mean just a few verses that are scattered throughout. Because Obed-Edom wasn't a Hebrew he wasn't a hero. He didn't have main character energy like the kids say these days. He was from a, not just a different tribe from the Hebrews. He was from an enemy tribe. He was a Philistine. But Obed-Edom makes his way into the Bible because he devotes himself to the presence of God. See, what had happened was David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. Imagine like a giant treasure box. David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city where he was going to be king. And so it was a whole rigmarole, a whole parade, a whole situation, right? But David didn't, you know, know the rules, didn't know how to take care of the Ark well. And so someone ended up dying because they mishandled the Ark. And David was super freaked out, as anybody would be, super upset with the Lord. And so he drops off the Ark at Obed-Edom's house the Gittite, who was an enemy. So he's like, if you die, too bad, so sad. I'm dropping this off at your house and you can deal with it, right? The disrespect, so messed up. But plot twist of plot twist, Obed-Edom doesn't die. Obed-Edom is blessed for three months. His house is blessed. His wife is blessed. All his cows are blessed. All his 25 dogs, if he had them, were blessed. All his kids were blessed. Everybody was blessed. David finds out about this and is like, um, you were supposed to die, like, or something bad was supposed to happen to you because something bad happened to me. What do you mean you're blessed? Let me come get that ark back, right? So he goes, gets the ark, and goes on his way. But that's not the last we hear about Obed-Edom. We find him a few chapters later as a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord. A gatekeeper was not a priest, Okay, Obed-Edom couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and do the whole incense thing, right? A gatekeeper wasn't even on the, you know, there was the Holy of Holies, the outer court, the inner court. He wasn't even on the inner court doing anything. He couldn't even really be on like the inside of the outer court. Like he was on the outskirts of the temple. That was all he could do. But I just, as I read his story, as I think about him, I'm like, Obed-Edom decides to pick up his entire life with his 62 descendants, the Bible says, 
move into enemy territory. The Hebrews and the Philistines still didn't get along because he encountered the presence of God and had to devote himself to it for the rest of his life. What is that about? If it was only material blessing, then Obed-Edom could have said, great, like I have cows on cows and I got goats on goats and I'm fine, you know? And David can just take the ark. But I think because it's the presence of God we're dealing with, it wasn't just material things that Obed-Edom encountered when he encountered the presence. I think there was peace he experienced that was different. Joy he experienced that was different. I wonder that first night when he had the ark, if maybe he was struggling with nightmares and they cleared up because he had the presence of God in his home. There is more to the presence of God than just, okay, God, give me what I want and then I'll see you later. That is not the life that we signed up for. We are made for more than that. And I think Obed-Edom had it right. When he said, yes, like I could stay in my inheritance, I could stay with the Philistines, I could stay with what I know, but I encountered something better and I want to experience that by any means necessary. And he moved and devoted himself to the presence of God. I want to be like that. The presence of God transforms us. Think about Moses with the burning bush. Think about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who encountered the presence of God and it was like fire shut up in his bones. Think about Jesus being transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration into glory because of the presence of God. Because the thing about the presence of God is that it makes us whole. Being in the presence of God makes us whole. Obed-Edom found what he was looking for, so much so that he uprooted his life to devote himself to the presence. David himself said, who have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth I desire besides you, Lord. You mean David, who had the military conquest? David, who had a zillion wives? David, who had all the servants, everything he could ever ask for, said, forget all of that. God, who have I but you? And there is no one on earth I desire besides you, Lord. The disciples left everything they knew to follow Jesus. Mary went against societal norms just to sit at the Lord's feet. Jesus was known for being in the temple or sneaking away in the wee hours of the morning to be with the Lord. And that's the kind of life that I want to live. But as I talk about God's presence, some of you may be wondering, well, like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in the presence of God? I'm happy for Obed-Edom and all, but I don't really know how to situate myself to devote myself to the presence. There are three things that I've practiced um, and that the saints of old have practiced. They're this, worship, which rewires us, the word, which revives us, and our walk, which realigns us. Worship rewires us, the word revives us, our walk realigns us. Vincent, during the offering moment, talked about gratitude. That's part of worship, magnifying the Lord above whatever we feel or above what our experiences are. Now, I don't know about y'all in the room, but I will speak for myself. I have a huge attitude problem. Like, I will be irritated about anything at any time. Don't catch me on the wrong day because I will go on a rant about how much I hate whatever it is, right? For me, because I know what I'm like, worship is crucial for me just to be a normal person. Forget like be uplifted, just to be decent. I need worship. But sometimes I have such an attitude 
that I can't even turn on a worship song or sing anything. Pray for me, y'all. So what I do, I'm just like, God, thank you. God, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And that will kind of start me going. And then I can, you know, simmer down a little bit and situate myself. A friend of mine years ago um, taught me a little thing that she would do, which is kind of do like a fun alphabet for the Lord. So it's like, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So it's like, A, God, you're awesome. B, God, you're beautiful. C, God, you're cool. D, God, you're delightful, whatever. Um, And so sometimes I'll do that. But worship, even an elementary way like that, just rewires us in order to orient our attention from whatever it is that's tearing us down and lift our eyes up to the Lord. The word revives us. We are not making this up as Christians. We aren't Christians because, oh, God loves me and he forgives me and I can do whatever I want. God does love you, period. God does forgive you, period. But what you're not gonna do is do whatever you want, okay? (laughs) If... (laughs) If you are going to live a life where you are following Jesus, there there is a way that Christians get to behave. There is a way that we get to orient ourselves. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I am culprit number one, two, three, four, and five. I think when I make it to heaven, the Lord's going to say, girl, you barely made it. You know, there will be no well done, good and faithful servant. It'll just be, you know what? A for effort. The cross did the rest for you. And I am grateful for that, right? But when I read the word, I at least know how far off I am. You know, I at least know, okay, I probably should not have lied about this thing. Or I probably could have, you know, not been so bitter and let bitterness take root in my heart. It's it's a way for me to say, oh, I'm not making this up. I'm not doing this on my own, right? So worship the word and then our walk, how we live, how we behave, how we live our lives, how we course correct when we get off track. Proverbs says a righteous person falls seven times but gets back up. And that's what distinguishes the righteous from the unrighteous. It's not that the righteous never do anything wrong. It's that we get back up. And so our walk realigns us to God's will and God's ways. So worship, the word, and our walk. But then what? I think a life focused on God is more than enough. But because being in the presence of God transforms us, there is something that happens where we bear fruit, where we, we have this momentum, we have this energy to live in a certain way. But it's not that we are in the presence of God and then we go off and conquer the world. I think that from the presence of God, we are led into a deeper encounter with ourselves. From the presence of God, we are led into a deeper encounter with ourselves. The self is a bridge from God to other people. And what happens in between us being in the presence of God and others is that we can ignore ourselves. We don't know what's happening in our hearts. And I think minor and major chaos ensues when we don't check ourselves. Our hearts are unaccounted for, unchecked and unknown. And it really causes a lot of issues that I don't think the Lord intends for us. Renowned mathematician Blaise Pascal said it this way. All human evil comes from a single cause, 
man's inability to sit still in a room. Think about that. Think about all the times where you had to apologize to your sibling or to your spouse or to one of your kids just because you didn't sleep well the night before or because you were hangry. Think about all the times where you had your own heartbreak and were so disoriented that you were just spewing on all sorts of people because you weren't aware of what was happening in your own soul. Psalm 139 has one of the most terrifying scriptures if you ask me, y'all didn't, but I'm telling you it's terrifying. David says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's terrifying to me. I already told y'all I have an attitude problem. So for me to be like, Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any right way in me. I'm like, I know every way in me is wrong. I don't need another opinion. I know, I know I am messed up and we're just gonna leave it at that. It's fine, I'm fine, everything's fine, right? But I may be a little terrified of what's in my heart, but it's more terrifying for my heart to go unchecked, wild and out and have all sorts of stuff happen. And I'm going to take it from David, right? No disrespect to him, up in heaven, chilling. But um, the man literally killed somebody because he did not know what was in his heart. He had unchecked lust, unchecked boredom, unchecked frustration, who knows what else, because he didn't know what was in there. Like, we get to learn from those who come before us to say, you know what? I'm going to reconsider. I'm going to think twice before I just go run wild. For some of us, that means counseling. Counseling does not mean you're weak. It just means, hey, maybe there's something happening in there and I should get a second opinion. I should be checked. Some of us, we need accountability. And accountability doesn't have to be like a, oh, you know, I'm gonna sit down with someone every week for two hours and tell them all of my sins. It's not confessional. Accountability may just be, hey, like, I've been thinking about this. I, you know, um, realize that when I get really sad, I turn to pornography. Or when I get really tired, I start texting people I shouldn't be texting. Like, every once in a while, can you check in on me to make sure I'm, I'm doing okay, right? That type of thing, where we aren't alone in checking our hearts, but our hearts do need to be checked. But it's not only the dark side that we need to know. Psalm 139 also contains beautiful verses about what's in our souls. David also says this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, each of us. And we get to learn about the God-woven intricacies when we sit with him. So many of you wonder, okay, How can I be with myself? How can I check my heart? How can I know what's in there? I have bad news for you. Um, Solitude and silence. I know, it sounds terrible. It's the worst. Solitude and silence. Pete Scazzaro wrote, uh, he's a pastor from New York, wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it's a good resource that has contemplative practices in it just for spiritual growth. And two of the things he talks about are solitude and silence. And even though it sounds, you know, a little scary, it really will change your life. Those two things have absolutely changed my life. And good news, extroverts, solitude is not just for introverts. So y'all can get in a room by yourself too. Everybody can do it, right? (laughs) 
And solitude isn't just doing a bunch of stuff when you're alone. So it's not, I'm in solitude, I'm gonna do laundry, and I'm gonna do dishes, and I'm gonna go grocery shopping without my kids, and I'm gonna be on TikTok, and I'm gonna be on threads, RIP Twitter, whatever threads is, right? (laughs) It is, solitude is a way for us to be with ourselves in the presence of God. If being in the presence of God gives us an opportunity to look at God and be changed as we behold him, then being in the presence of ourselves gives God the opportunity to look at us and we can see ourselves through God's eyes. Solitude gives us the opportunity to see ourselves through God's eyes. As I began to spend time in solitude, I began to learn that God doesn't hate me. I used to struggle with a lot of self-hatred. So being alone or being with my own thoughts really freaked me out because all I thought that would happen would be, you know what, and here's another reason why you suck. And here's another reason why you're gonna fail. And here's another reason why you're the worst. I thought that God was gonna mirror me. But what I found was that when I get alone with myself, I find a God who's smiling at me. I find a God who loves me. I find a God who thinks I'm awesome. I find a God who really cares about me. I don't find a God who has a list of things that I'm doing wrong. I have a list, but he does not have a list, right? He has a list of things I'm doing right, actually. And so sitting with God, I found, oh, I I can be alone with myself because I have a mirror of light looking back at me. It's not darkness, it's light. For me, solitude, I'm a poet. So solitude has looked like this. This is a box of journals. And this is my very first journal. I was 11. It's my first little prayer journal, right? I think I wrote something like, I'm mad at my friend Jasmine, and I love my friend Brandy, you know? (laughs) Yep, here's some cursive. I'm, Father, forgive me for getting angry and being impatient. You know what? Nothing has changed. Why? (laughs) 20 years, and I am still doing the same shenanigans. You know what? Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I, I will be okay. It'll be great. This is one of my journals from college. This is one of my journals from high school. My friend Jordan gave it to me at a surprise birthday party that my parents threw for me at Red Robin, right? This is a journal from junior high where I had a small group leader and she made us all journals and put our names on it. I still have mine. This is one of my journals from when I lived in Utah. This is one of my journals from, I think this was from last year, yeah. (laughs) I have a couple of friends sitting in the second row who anytime we go to coffee, I have pulled out this journal and been like, let me read you something from here. So they're like, yeah, that was from last year. Thank you, thank you, friends. And this is the journal I'm currently using. So solitude for me is unfiltered thoughts and time with the Lord. For some of you, you're like, I don't journal and I'm never gonna journal and leave me alone, that's fine. Solitude for you may be a long walk, or run, it may be a cup of coffee or tea by yourself, it may be a long drive. But the thing that makes solitude special really 
is that you just get to be with yourself and with the Lord. So there's solitude, but there's also silence. And when I first started spending time in silence, I would literally just shake. Like I was so restless, I could not get my act together at all. But I fought for it. And I learned that God speaks from silence and silence makes space for the spirit. Silence makes space for the spirit. So here's what I recommend. Two minutes of silence in the morning and at night will change your life. Not an hour, not 20 minutes, not five minutes. I'm just talking about two minutes in the morning and at night. I know that there are moms in the room, business owners, late night gamers, everyone in between. And before y'all protest and telling me all the reasons why you don't have time, let me gently tell you that nobody had more to do than Jesus. Nobody. But Jesus was known for sneaking off to who knows where to be alone with himself and to be with God. So you can at least do two minutes in the morning and two minutes at night and go from there. The reason is that being present with ourselves makes us steady. So being present with God makes us whole, but being present with ourselves makes us steady. And once we are present with ourselves, with our longings, our joys, our hopes, our fears, and bring our hearts into the presence of God, From that place flows the ability and the delight of being with others. The great poet and environmentalist Wendell Berry put it this way. We enter solitude in which we also lose loneliness. True solitude is found in the wild places where one is without human obligation. One's inner voice becomes audible. One feels the attraction of one's most intimate sources. In consequence, one responds more clearly to other lives. The more coherent one becomes within oneself as a creature, the more fully one enters into communion of all creatures. So we devote ourselves to God who makes us whole. We make a practice of being present with ourselves which makes us steady. But then what comes next? We enter into being present with others and that helps us endure. Life is short, but the journey is long. And nobody makes it alone. Nobody makes it alone. No one. So many of the best things that happened in the Bible happened when people were in groups. So be at church, show up. If you can't show up, watch online. We have so many friends watching online. But it's easy to say that your spirituality will only happen. You know, I'm just gonna pray and read my Bible at home and I'm just gonna watch sermons on YouTube and I'm gonna only do that. And there is space for that, but also there is something about being in this room, being together, being with each other that really makes a difference. Even if you don't talk to anybody, there are times where I, when I first started coming to Friday night, I would sneak in the back and sit right over there didn't talk to a soul. And you see how that worked out for me. So, you know, I'm like, I don't, I don't know where, I took a wrong left turn somewhere. But I, it changed me just being in the presence of God with the people of God. There was something extraordinary about that. 
I think about Acts chapter 2, you know, where it's like they were all together in one place and fire descends and everybody's, you know, speaking other languages and doing the whole thing. Peter, you know, is preaching a whole sermon to thousands of people and it's like when we are together, God does really extraordinary, powerful things when we're together. I'm thinking about how all the Israelites experienced the wilderness together. And of course, they did a lot of tomfoolery together. So it's like, you know, group thing doesn't always work out well. But the Lord showed up for them when they were all together. Psalm 133 says how blessed it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. There is something about togetherness that is of the Lord. Eternity is togetherness. We need each other. I think about, um, this was actually just a few weeks ago, it was recent, where Scott and Bethany Palmer, they usually sit over here. Scott has been going to Friday night since the beginning and is one of our elders at New Life. And I, Scott is just one of the nicest people. If you've met him, you know that he is just as sweet as pie. And every time I see Scott, hey, Jordan, what's up? Always encouraging, always has something nice to say. Scott is awesome. A few weeks ago, I was at a place called Every Home for Christ, which is um, a prayer room here in the city. If you haven't been there, you have to go there. It's awesome. So I was there just praying, and I'm a very future-oriented person. So I will think about, you know, 60 years from now, you know, I'm going to be 92, and I'm already planning my 92nd birthday party, you know, or like, you know, what am I going to do like five years from now, and what is that going to look like? I'm very future-oriented. And so I went to Every Home for Christ, and I thought it was just going to be a normal prayer time, you know, whatever thinking about 25 years from now. But what started happening is that I started getting weirdly anxious and I started just kind of feeling terrified about the future. And I started getting a little bit overwhelmed. And it took me off guard because I didn't go to every home for Christ feeling overwhelmed. But as I started thinking about the future, which I always do, it just kind of took a twist and a turn. And normally I know how to get myself out of a type of jam like that. But I couldn't get myself out. And so I pulled out my phone, not to turn on the Bible app, you know. Um, When I get anxious, I'll scroll through Instagram or scroll through my email. So that's what I was doing. And I check my work email, and I have an email from Scott. And I've known Scott for a couple years now. He's never emailed me. So I check my email, and I'm like, oh, like maybe he has a question about Friday night or something or whatever. Nope. Scott's email said this. Hey, Jordan, I want you to know that you killed it on Friday night. This was early in June. You are an amazing pastor and woman of God. It is going to be awesome to watch you continue to grow and become even more of a voice in our church for the years to come. God bless you for all you do for our church family. And when I say I was in a swirly swirl of all the swirls and reading his email just straightened me up, That is powerful. Scott didn't know that I needed him. He didn't know, he didn't have a word from the Lord, like, oh, Jordan's going through a hard time. Let me send her an email. That stuff happens. But it just so happened because God cares about me. He cares about you. That when I needed someone to steady me, Scott Palmer sent me an email. That is being present with others. And that is how we endure. So what does that look like for you? Is there someone you can email this week? Someone you can text? Someone you can call? Someone who needs you? 
November 6th, 2020, I was leading a internship um, retreat for my old job. And we were in worship and I feel this like tightness in my chest and I start sobbing uncontrollably. And it wasn't like I'm feeling the Lord, I'm crying tears of presence, you know, that happens. I knew something was wrong. And I look at my phone and my dad was calling me. So I stepped out of, you know, this little cabin I was in, um, step on a dirt pathway. And I was said, hey dad, what's up? And he said, I am boarding a flight to Baltimore because your grandmother has just passed away, my mom's mom. Can you call your mom? I'm about to get on the plane and I can't talk to her. And I said, of course. So I hung up the phone, call my mom. My mom said, the funeral home has just taken your grandmother's body. I'm here with the chaplain. And so I start praying with her, just a tearful, heartbreaking prayer, right on this dirt pathway in this cabin. And so I finish praying and I'm thinking, how am I gonna keep co-leading this retreat? I, this is my last living grandparent. I don't know what to do. And as I am hanging up the phone with my mom, my friend Rosalie and her three little toe-headed blonde kids come wandering down the path. And Rosalie sees me and knows instantly that something is wrong. So as she comes over to me and grabs me, I just start sobbing in her arms. And she just let me crown her shoulder until I could get the words to say, Doe, like I am... I'm, my grandmother passed, I'm so heartbroken, I don't know what to do. Rosalie was present with me in the moment when I needed her. And that's what it looks like for us. But it's not only the bad times, you know, it's not only in difficulty that we get to be present with each other. It's also in the good times. About six weeks ago, my older sister got married. There are three of us, so I have an older sister, there's me and my younger brother. So my older sister gets married and we all got to go to North Carolina and celebrate her getting married and it was awesome. And one of my favorite memories, it's just seared on my heart, is of the five of us, my mom, my dad, me, my sister, and my brother, driving with my sister to her wedding. My brother was driving, my dad was in the passenger seat. I was sitting on one side of my sister in my emerald green bridesmaid's dress. She was sitting in the middle in her beautiful wedding dress. My mom was sitting on the other side. And we just got to drive. It was a 12-minute drive from the hotel to, you know, the wedding venue. But we got to be together as a family. And it just reminded me of times growing up as a kid where we would drive to church as a family or drive to a restaurant or drive to a friend's house, you know. And when I was a kid, I'm like, whatever, we're just driving in a car, you know. But as an adult, like, my siblings live in different places. My sister's in North Carolina. My brother's in Texas. Like, getting to be together like that and be present with each other was really holy and really special. And those are the types of things when I talk about presence. How can we create moments like that? Or how can we open our eyes to the moments like that that are already in front of us? Because nobody makes it alone. And I'll say this again, being present with others helps us endure. Being present with others helps us endure. I don't want life to happen to us. I don't want us to get caught up in summer or fall or a new career or doing all the things or even being caught up in making memories so that way we can make sure that we're present. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying first, acknowledge that God is with us. He is with us. Then acknowledge, oh, we get to be present with God. And that's where our wholeness comes from. Then we get to be present with ourselves and that makes us steady. And then we get to be present with others and that helps us endure. And I am fully convinced that when we live a life of presence, we will live lives that we can be really proud of and live lives that glorify God. Amen. We all stand with me if you are able. I would like to invite our communion service to come up. And as they come up and as we take communion together, I'll come up and lead us after, um, after everyone gets their elements. But I really want y'all to think through, okay, I can be present with God or I can be present with myself or I can be present with others and ask what is the Holy Spirit inviting you into? Then so come receive communion and then I will come up and lead us all together.